You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 24th of October 2023 on Monocle Radio. President Emmanuel Macron of France outlines an unorthodox approach to Hamas. President Recep Tayyip Erdogan tantalizes Sweden still further, and the New Zealand town being driven to the end of its wits by Celine Dion. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Nadine Bachelor-Hunt and Yossi Meckelberg will discuss the day's big stories and our On This Day historical feature will recall the amateur stunt woman for whom merely admiring Niagara Falls wasn't enough. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I am joined today by Yossi Meckelberg, Associate Fellow at Chatham House and a lecturer in international relations at the University of Roehampton, and by Nadine Bachelor-Hunt, a political reporter for Politics Home. Welcome both. Hello. Uh, We will start in the Middle East and with everybody's ongoing attempts to stop everything getting even worse than it already is. Arguably counterintuitively on that front, French President Emmanuel Macron visiting Israel has suggested saddling up the same international coalition that rousted Islamic State in Syria and Iraq to go after Hamas. Though Macron was light on the details of this proposal, it is a fair bet that he is overestimating the enthusiasm of France's allies for urban and combat in the booby-trapped ruins of Gaza. Possibly more constructively, certainly more optimistically, Macron also called for a decisive relaunch of the Israel-Palestine peace process. Um, Yossi, first of all, is this, and it wouldn't be the first time, Emmanuel Macron just having ideas in public again? I think the ideas are great, but I don't think he has an idea how to translate them into reality. It's all, you know, this kind of a president after prime minister arriving to Israel, every express solidarity, which is great. Everyone thinks that Israel has the right to defend itself as if they invented something in, in, in global security that you have the right to defend yourself. But then you ask what you're going to do with that, they have no clue. Should there, be, should there be a crowd invention? Shouldn't be. Do we have to wait until the hostages are released? Or this is part of the campaign to release the, the hostages? How is it going to prompt Iran's response? How is it going to prompt Hezbollah's response? How is it going to destabilize the region? If there is influx in refugee, how is it going to influence Egypt or uh, or Jordan. Those are a lot. Those are big questions. They're, they're not. So they're coming for a few hours. That's nice. Solidarity. Israel suffered something terrible. But at the same time, we already have, according to some sources, 5,700 people killed in Gaza. So this is, how do you stop this? And if there is a, a ground invasion or incursion, how this is going to affect the, and it will also result in more Israelis uh, uh, casualties. And we know what happens. The mission creep in this situation when you start fighting door to door in a place like Gaza. So the other option, or the death toll among the Palestinians will be massive or it will be in the Israeli and possibly both. So they need to have a concerted effort also to think about where to stop it, where is the ceasefire beyond that, and have a political plan. And I wish all of these leaders in the last few years when some of us warned against the place imploding, they should have all these kind of visits to try to stop it 
way before this disaster. Well, indeed so, uh, but we are regrettably where we are. And Nadine, when we look at this uh, procession of world leaders travelling to and from Israel, uh, as Yossi says, they are all certainly publicly uh, expressing support for and solidarity with Israel. But privately, do you get the sense that they are rather leaning on Israel to try and wind it in a little bit? Yeah, I think Biden has done a lot of diplomacy behind the scenes in on this front. I think the fact that, you know, we're getting trucks going into Gaza via the Rafa crossing, I think that has a lot to do with Biden. I think the fact that we've not seen a ground invasion yet has a lot to do with Biden. And I do feel like there is an element of almost babysitting with all these foreign leaders going to visit Israel because they know that Netanyahu isn't known for his restraint. A lot of his response in Gaza will be to do also with the domestic situation, with his position in Israel. He's not in a particularly strong position at the moment. The attack on the 7th of October was a huge failure of a state that is supposed to protect Jews and it it failed in its kind of number one purpose. And I think internally there's going to be a blame game. I've seen some reports from the Israeli press saying that Netanyahu plans to blame the security failures on the IDF, which will be another internal row. So I think this kind of stream of foreign leaders going into Israel is also there to, to, to babysit Netanyahu. And I think had those visits not happened and had particularly Biden's diplomacy not been so intense. I think we may have already seen a ground invasion. So I think it is working to some extent. And also, obviously, there's a lot of hostages in Gaza that are foreign nationals, including British, British, French, etc. And so lots of governments have a vested interest in this situation. So, you know, I, th- I do think a lot of it is babysitting, to be quite, to be quite frank. Uh, Yossi, there are a number of factors which are possibly uh, staying Israel's hand somewhat. We have not seen that full-scale ground invasion uh, of Gaza that everybody has been anticipating since October 7th. Um, It's not just the diplomacy possibly restraining Israel or the hostages. Israel is also concerned about finding itself having to fight on two fronts, uh, should Hezbollah, based in Lebanon, get into this. But If Israel does launch some sort of ground incursion at some point, is it yet clear what the object of that would be? Is there an end game in sight beyond uh, exacting exemplary punishment on Gaza? And I think actually the fact that we are two and a half weeks later might enter some rationality in all this process. Mm -hmm. Because had Israel responded immediately, then probably a lot of it is just, as you it's about revenging. It's just us hitting Hamas. As, as hard as possible, even obviously they were caught without the right intelligence, so what would have done then? So there is a better chance that uh, that right now the operation will be more surgical and actually gather information, gather the intelligence together with other Western intelligence community. But the question of the North, because there is on a small scale, there are skirmishes on, 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 the, on, on the border as we speak. Now, Iran already sends messages that we are not going to be involved. You are on, almost said you are on your own if you get into war with, with, uh, with, uh, with Israel. On the other hand, we saw last week missiles already launched from, from Yemen. So we have a lot of mixed messages there. But that's the, what is the objective? Depend, is it a military objective or is it a political objective? So they... The, object, the declared objective is to eliminate Hamas or eliminate all its military capabilities. This is almost impossible. Are you going to also other the political leaders, for instance? And some of them don't even live in, in, in Gaza. 
can find them in 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 Qatar, for instance. So the, no, that, that hasn't stopped Israel on previous occasions. Cool, but Qatar is a bit more problematic mm. because it's uh, Qatar is a very important country when it comes to negotiate the release of hostages. So there are so many elements. That's what you know. Also, forming the emergency government, the cabinet, that will try to deal with the military. And the military itself, the IDF, is is weighing its option. What do you do when you enter into a place, Gaza, that's most of probably the military underground, barricade himself in, in, in bunkers? This is one of the most dangerous, most difficult wars to, to fight. And then, and again, as Nadine said, when you have a prime minister who's completely discredited on so many levels, you need actually a Biden to give him kind of a bear hug and say, you know, we love you, but don't move too much before we say so. And we'll keep seeing that quite a bit. And we see military personnel generals with experience, for instance, in Iraq, already present in Israel and advising Israel how to deal with that. I think, I think the longer the, the delay in the in the ground in in Kershin, the more likely that it will be on a smaller scale. Uh, Nadine, just finally on this, uh, to the other part uh, of President Macron's um, words in Israel, this idea of a a decisive reanimation of the peace process, that's probably not likely to happen anytime soon. But if we wind this forward to out the other end of whatever Israel thinks it's going to do in Gaza, which presumably will at the very least uh, reduce uh, Hamas's personnel and military capacity, is there really any prospect here for some sort of peace process rising heroically from the rubble? I can't see an Israeli administration after what happened on the 7th of October negotiating any sort of peace with Hamas. Like I just don't see that as something that's mm. realistic. The question for Gaza is if if Israel, you know, fulfills its its you know its military objectives seem to be erasing Hamas. Rishi Sunak yesterday, I think, said that Hamas can no longer be allowed to govern the Gaza Strip. That's something I think that we're seeing more of is they need to be gone. Who replaces them? You know, does um, you know Mahmoud Abbas work with Israel to establish a government in Gaza? Does that give his government very much kind of credibility to be working with? There doesn't really seem to be any kind of tangible you know, next step. So we talk about peace. I'm quite pessimistic about this because there isn't a plan for Gaza and and it's not going to go away. And, you know, there are some people within Netanyahu's government who would rather just see Gazans gone, just push out of push out of Gaza and pushed into Egypt, whatever, but they're not going anywhere. So where this leads in terms of a peace process, I, I, I really, I really don't know. And I'm, I'm not optimistic about that. And I think it just depends on what government is in Gaza after whatever Israel does in Gaza is is, is complete. Well, let's move along somewhat. And listeners with childhood recollections of Charles M. Schultz's Peanuts cartoons will recall the recurring set piece whereby Lucy Van Pelt repeatedly offers to hold a football for Charlie Brown to kick, only to whisk it away at the last second. For the purposes of this item, Lucy is President Recep Tayyip Erdogan of Turkey, Charlie Brown is Sweden, and the ball is membership of NATO. Erdogan is once again enticing Sweden to begin its run-up, submitting Sweden's NATO bid to Turkey's parliament for ratification. Sweden's soldiers are not sowing their NATO shoulder flashes on just yet. However, it is unclear how long ratification might 
actually take. Um, Nadine, can the Swedes at least now call this, an, I don't know, three quarters to seven eighths done deal, do you think? I think... I think so, but it's still quite an unpredictable situation. But I hope so, because I feel like there's a lot of other things that people's time and energy could be spent on at the moment, <laughs> rather than like waiting and waiting and waiting. Um, but it seems like an optimistic sign. And perhaps, you know, I don't know, maybe what's going on in the Middle East has kind of jostled him along a, lot, a little bit to think, you know, we need to kind of move forward with this stalling in a time when things were already quite uncertain, probably isn't helping, creating more uncertainty with Sweden uh, joining NATO. So it seems positive for the Swedes. I'd be quite optimistic, I think. And yeah, I mean, Russia's still there. With everything going on, we do need to remember mm. that Russia is very much still there and still uh, invading Ukraine. Um, Yossi, is it also possible that Erdogan basically just thinks he's had as much fun with this as he's possibly going to? I, You know, to talk about the point eight, uh, three quarters, I think he, he plays a long game. This is a very Erdogan way to deal with things. See how much I can get out of the United States, NATO, because he dances on many parties at any given point. With Russia, with the United States, sometimes with Israel, sometimes with Iran. He plays in all these games because this is what gives him power. Being on the southern flank of, of NATO always gave uh, Turkey, has given Turkey much power. So we'll drag it along and see what can he get. <coughs> and also, it's one of his ways to teach the, the Swedes a lesson, you know, who is really calling the shots here. Now, he knows the minute that Sweden is joining NATO, that's it, he can't get them out of it. So we play this game, also sending a message to the United States, anyone else. You know, you might, you might think it, you are the strong part. But I can at least delay, make you make concession when it comes to Turkey until the game is over. And probably at this stage, yes, he accepted that it's, it's Sweden would join the NATO. Then is, of course, the question of collective security and how you handle it and what does it mean to NATO. But it's a different story. Well, indeed. So, um, Nadine, do we also suspect that Erdogan might have calculated that this was... This was the fuss he could safely cause. He he didn't raise a stink about Finland, which, of course, directly abuts Russia. And I, I do realise that there are specific issues with Sweden that Turkey had. But if he'd wanted to be difficult about Finland, he could probably have found a way. Exactly. It does feel like a kind of a safe bet for him to, to kind of almost like filibuster with Sweden and flex his muscles. And, you know, in a way, Turkey has, even with the with the stuff with Israel, you know, he's propped up quite a few times times over the last few weeks saying public statements and things I think it's reminding the world that Turkey's there it's still important we can still frustrate people's plans and grand plans um, but yeah I don't think I couldn't yeah as you say he didn't didn't interfere with Finland in the same way so I think for Sweden it's just flexing muscles the, the thing that always strikes me as, as weird about this Yossi and I understand what you're saying about how it it emphasizes that he is a powerful man and that Turkey is an important country uh, and he is a powerful man because he does lead an important country but it just it always amazes me that he never sees this kind of, you know, petty chest prodding argument starting as actually unworthy uh, of a nation of the stature that he believes Turkey to be because he shouldn't need, he shouldn't ha he shouldn't think he has to do this. Turkey is a massive clearly economically, culturally, politically, diplomatically and strategically important nation and yet he carries on pulling this this nickel and dime nonsense. 
because it's part of his personality. A, he loves to pick a fight, and he will. <laughs> he will, he will have, if you'll see kind of his all this time, all his time in 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 power, he always picks a fight when one is not necessary, and you know. And then it's become a prolonged conflict with, you know, we know with the Marmara, for instance, with Israel. Then when it comes with Syria and, and, and the Kurd. He never looks for resolve because he knows that actually he stays in power as long as he has some fight to pick. The minute everything actually works for Turkey, why do they need him with the high inflation, with economy goes in all, all, the, all the wrong direction? So for him, it's actually his comfort zone, which doesn't always make sense to us. As you say, you look at the geostrategy, the geoeconomy of, of, of Turkey, it's a powerful country. You can actually utilize it. In a very effective way, but it's not his worldview. It's the kind of the, the neo Ottoman. Turkey is not respected enough. You don't give us the kind of gifts that, that we deserve. So I'll play this game, and then you notice us. See, Nadine, it's at least that same dynamic is more, I guess, explicable when you see it in Hungary, which still uh, has not ratified Sweden's membership either. But Hungary is very much the national equivalent of that that little bloke just blundering around the pub, pushing everybody's drinks over uh, and trying to start something. Yeah, I, I feel like it... Even with the EU, it's the EU. It's just a bit like, oh god, yeah. And then there's just Hungary over there in the corner, that just kind of like going on doing some like increasingly far right things. But we'll just pretend that's not happening. Um, yeah, it does. It does. It does kind of kind of feel that way. And I, I think you know we are in an era as well of of leaders, particularly male leaders, who like attention and like drama and operate in this kind of crisis environment and and live for it. Really, I mean, you could arguably say Trump is the ultimate drama mm. addict. He, they love it. So it does kind of make sense in many ways. Erdogan is a product of his time in terms of the political news we've seen. Biden's kind of potentially the opposite. Maybe it's a shift in the kind of in the tide. But yeah, I feel like we've seen many iterations of him over various points over the globe over the last few years. Well, you have furnished us there, Nadine, with a seamless link to the United States, where Republican Congress folk have had another crack at electing a speaker, having repeatedly and farcically failed to do so in the three weeks since they threw out the previous incumbent, Kevin McCarthy. As luck would have it, last week at the Arctic Circle Assembly in Reykjavik, I spoke to Senator Lisa Murkowski of of Alaska, one of only seven Republican senators who voted to convict President Donald Trump at his more recent impeachment trial. I asked her if she perceived any indication that her more excitable GOP colleagues in the House were planning an imminent return to Earth. (laughs) Episode. <laughs> I certainly hope so, because we need them. We can't pass legislation if the other body is not operational. And right now, they're not operational because they have effectively not organized without a speaker. So I'm quite concerned about this. We have some very, very significant and important issues in front of us. The president just delivered a supplemental budget that will provide ongoing assistance to Ukraine, which is absolutely imperative in my view, support for Israel, which is absolutely imperative in my view. There will be additional support for Taiwan, as well as the southern border. These are priorities that have to be addressed, and they have to be addressed sooner than later. And so we need the House to be operational, to be functional, and it needs to be more than just in structure. We've got work to do. We've got to get moving. So the House has gone through a hard week. I think we recognize that, but uh, my hopes is that by the time we get back, 
They will have figured out who is going to take point in the House of Representatives for the majority and will be moving forward. That was U.S. Senator Lisa Murkowski, and you can hear more from that interview in Saturday's edition of The Foreign Desk. Um, Yossi, within the last hour or so, we do have a, a new nominee. It is Tom Emmer, who is the House Majority Whip. He's probably not entirely bonkers. Uh, he is not an election truther. Um, he's actually, hilariously, notably more moderate than Kevin McCarthy on most issues. Uh, the question then uh, arises, is does he have the remotest chance of actually getting the votes in the House? You see, under the current uh, circumstances, all what you described now actually excludes him from winning anything <laughs> and, 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 and winning election. That, that's, and it was interesting in the interview, talking about a difficult week. No, it's difficult 10 months at least since the midterm election, mm. which anyone that doesn't swear his allegiance to Donald Trump stand no chance in, in surviving in, in, in Republican politics right now. And we see if you're just actually doing like Kevin McCarthy for a change, did something sensible, was passing the, the, the mm-hmm. budget, then the next thing is, is, is out. And then you have someone else, Jim Jordan is trying to, to be selected and I can't remember, was there six, seven rounds until he was there, he decided not to run anymore. Now there is a very long list. Now, if you remember, what's the role of a speaker between running the House of Representatives, seeing all the daily businesses of all of it, uh, leading, though it's not by constitution, but leading the, the, the largest party there in, in, in the House, there are a lot of business to do now. For instance, now with the budget of allocating resources to Ukraine and Israel in time of crisis, and they are still dealing with who is going to be the speaker. So... Now, we are used here in the, in the, if we ask anyone in the UK, what's the role of the speaker, say, probably to say order, order, and, then, <laughs> and, and, and telling petulant MPs to get out of the, of the house when they misbehave. It's not the case in the United States. They can really close government for a long time. So they, you know, they should the, get on with the job. The, the speaker of the house is also uh, second in line exactly. to the presidency mm-hmm. uh, in case of a, a sequence of mishaps. Um, Nadine, is it clear to you that there has been any perceptible strategy behind what the House Republicans have been doing these last three weeks, or are we just watching ferrets in a sack behaving as ferrets in a sack will? I don't think there is a strategy in the Republican Party at the moment, just broadly across the board. I think it's in quite in disarray. I think it's still. I mean, Trump is still in in, in you know in, in the picture. He's going to probably be their nominate like their candidate for the there, next, there has in fact been some excitable talk about drafting him as speaker <laughs> there is there is argument over whether that is technically possible but some people well, are advocating like, this i feel like that speaks for itself the party <laughs> is in a very odd place and therefore choosing a role like this which requires you know being measured sensible balanced rational i think a lot of those qualities have gone from the mainstream republican party as it still recovers from the trump era i mean the trump era is not over let's be honest he's still there Mm. he's probably going to be that candidate so it's not a huge surprise that this row is ongoing i just think the timing of it i mean the timing's never going to be great you know democracy needs to function whether things are going really badly or really well but we're in a particularly bad time right now and for the, for, for uh, kind of American democracy to kind of be paralysed a little bit by, by this speaker's election when, you know, you've got the crisis in Israel and Gaza, you've got the crisis in Ukraine. Um, it's just is not great timing, but I'm just not optimistic that the Republicans are in a place where they can navigate their way out of this smoothly and sensibly. Uh, Yossi, is it being untowardly cynical to suggest that this is preferable to these people attempting to govern? 
There is an argument here. <coughs> no, but in all seriousness, it's it's a reflection, not of par- paralysis of, of the governing bodies, but of the country. It's so divided. And when we need actually leadership coming from the United States to deal with all the crisis, again, we stop talking about climate change all of it. You know, this is second, third priority right now. We ignore some of the most issues that we expect, definitely in the West, for American leadership. But as you suggest, if this is the kind of people to govern, maybe it's better not to have anyone to, to, to govern us. But it's something to has to do with actually healing of the, of the American society. I think I suggested this before. I think they need to go to Philadelphia once again and start thinking about revising the way they are governed because it definitely doesn't work, not on a state level and, and not on, on, on a nationwide level. Uh, Just a final thought on this one, uh, Nadine. You mentioned Donald Trump. Uh, There have been further developments for him today. Uh, Jenna Ellis has become, I think I'm right in saying, the third of his lawyers to plead guilty in Georgia and presumably uh, has promised to grass him up to some degree or another. Um, How would you say this is all going for him? Not great, but again, <laughs> it's Donald Trump. So he always just seems to... He, he reminds me a little bit of Boris Johnson in terms of when Boris Johnson was called the Teflon the Teflon Tory in, in that he just seems to keep battling along. I mean, somehow he's still the frontrunner despite everything that is happening in his you know personal life right now, legally. He's still the frontrunner for the Republican nomination for the next election. So it, it's it's disturbing, but I, I do think he'll get through. And I think I had a conversation with somebody recently who said there are certain states in America where you can be in jail and be president. So that's also something... In, 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 the, in the US more broadly, no, there is absolutely no legal impediment to somebody running and win, for and winning the presidency while in prison. Well, there, there you go. So I just think it speaks to the fact that we're even having to have that conversation realistically that could be a possibility yeah. uh, is is a bit of a damning indictment I think of how where America is now and also where the Republican Party is at the moment in that a candidate despite this long list some of it you know there are recordings of him telling people to try and find more votes for him that is still not not enough to kind of put people off I think is pretty isn't, pretty stark isn't the case that even the Teflon go Teflon eventually scratched quite badly and that's what probably what happens now to Trump. Oh, I'm not so sure. And it will stick eventually. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it, it's true. Eugene Debs, I think I'm right in saying, in 1920, won nearly a million votes for president from the Atlanta clink uh, on, the, <laughs> on the Socialist Party ticket as well. Uh, to New Zealand now, specifically to Porirua, just north of Wellington, the decent citizens of which are having their slumbers disturbed by car-mounted speakers blaring the works of Quebecois caterwauler Celine Dion at window-rattling volume. we get the idea. This is apparently a subculture known as siren battles, in which atrocious nitwits bedeck their cars with speakers before unleashing the loudest music they can. For reasons surpassing understanding, Dion has become a particular favourite of the siren battlers. Um, Yossi, I have extremely Old Testament views on the subject of people who inflict unsolicited noise on others. It is my earnest belief that all of these people should be pitchforked forthwith into the nearest available pond. Is that wrong of me? 
Not necessarily. <laughs> you see, I think there are. I think we need to analyze it a bit closer because there are a lot do of we, issues. Do we though? Yeah, are yeah, they really? I think this is pretty open and shut. The, but do go on. It's the first time that since I've ever been here that we misled a little bit the audience here because the quality of the music we played is not the one that the well, people of not. New Zealand. No, because it's currently it's a very low quality, something like mm-hmm. megaphone. So not only they inflict on them Celine Dion and and very noisily, but also in a very low quality. Yeah, it's it's basically it's it's basically that person on the train listening to audio on their phone, but at four hundred decibels. Yeah, it's like the driver on the tube, kind of quality of of. So that's it that, like wailing rather than singing. Probably. Yeah. So th- this is this is really unfair on 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 people's. Um, is part of the problem here, Nadine, that local, doubtless well-meaning authorities in attempting to get to grips with this are actually indulging this as some kind of, as they keep calling it, a subculture? Isn't this just appalling young men behaving like dickheads? I feel like they've cre- they're creating a subculture. <laughs> I think they're creating a new New Zealand subculture. Who knows? Maybe in you know, 10 years' time when you go to New Zealand, there'll be neighbourhoods you can specifically go to to watch these battles of people listening to Celine Dion until they t- can't take it anymore. I personally find Celine Dion a bit annoying, um, so I find it even more annoying to have it blasted down a really kind of horrible like gritty speaker um but i don't think i'll go old testament i don't think it's that that far from see because because <laughs> it is my contention that it's not even about the quality of the actual music or even the quality of the recordings honestly if the people doing this were literally playing my own favorite records i would still want them arrested <laughs> <laughs> am, 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 I, am I genuinely alone on this? I think it no. depends. I think it depends if they're chasing you. Like, what is the kind of context? Are they chasing you down the road with a boombox? Are they chasing you down the road with like kind of like a megaphone? Uh, is it outside your house? I think if it was parked up outside my house for for days, then I'd then I'd maybe go Old Testament. Maybe I'd, I'd get there after minutes. After minutes, I, <laughs> gen, genuinely, I think the rule is that if you deliberately broadcast unnecessary noise into the earshot of someone who doesn't want to hear it, you should be tarred and feathered. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not so sure. That, I, I, I agree with you about the conviction. I'm not so sure about the, the punishment that you suggest. But yeah, even to be honest, even in London, when you were, and all of a sudden a car passes by with, you know, yeah. God knows millions of decibels. Said, no, this is unacceptable behavior, but maybe I'm just showing my age. Or yeah. you could invest in a pair of noise-cancelling headphones. Uh, <laughs> I've done. <laughs> Why is it up to me? Um, just, just finally, I do, I do want to ask each of you in turn, uh, Nardine, you first, if you could choose the works of one artist to play at deafening volume with the specific aim of irritating everybody, who, who would it oh, be? Oh, that's a good question. Um... Oh, I can't think. Maybe the ketchup song. <laughs> I mean, that song's so annoying. Just that. I don't even know what the... Are they the, the, the Barbie girls? No, I, I believe they were actually called Last Ketchup. Well, there you go. Then, then. The, yeah. the, their okay. song, that That's, song. Okay, and all our listeners who now have that in their heads are grateful <laughs> to you, I'm sure. Um, Yossi. Actually, the song that I would love actually someone to blast is something from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and that's actually I might even enjoy and change my mind about this. No, no. <laughs> N- nothing should or will ever change your mind about the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Yossi. 
They were dreadful. Um, see, the thing is, like, for me, the answer is just going to be literally any music or indeed noise uh, whatsoever. You can you can tell how I've ended up making a career in a largely audio-based medium. Um, Yossi Meckelberg and Nadine Bachelor-Hunt, thank you both for joining us. And finally, on today's show, our On This Day historical feature recalls the establishment of a new benchmark for human daring-do and or daftness. It seems like a weird thing to want to do, but then so do a lot of ventures people undertake which are any or all of unnecessary, difficult and dangerous. They see a mountain and want to climb it, note a depth and wish to plummet, or, kind of combining the two, a waterfall and wish to ride over it in a barrel. Annie Edson Taylor, a schoolteacher and Civil War widow from upstate New York, did exactly that on her 63rd birthday on October 24, 1901, becoming the first person to survive an intentional ride over Niagara Falls. Niagara Falls is, in fact, three waterfalls, Horseshoe, American and Bridal Vale. For all Niagara's fame, none of those falls figure among lists of the world's highest. The tallest of the Niagara Falls, the one Annie Edson Taylor Road, is Horseshoe at 57 metres, maybe one-seventeenth the height of Tugela Falls in South Africa or Angel Falls in Venezuela. In fairness, 57 metres doubtless feels a lot higher when you're bobbing towards it in a barrel. Taylor embarked upon her feet for those two most American of motivations, fame and money. She had fallen on hard times and believed that this was her means of recapturing the status to which she had become accustomed. She was very clear that she did not seek a spectacular death, as she primly explained to an inquiring reporter. Not by any means. I'm too good an Episcopalian to do such a thing as that. I believe in a supreme ruler and fully realise what self-destruction would mean in the hereafter. My parents were Christian people and I was brought up in affluence and properly educated and instructed. Taylor had some difficulty enlisting assistance with her plan. There were those abashed by the legal or ethical difficulties of ushering a desperate and possibly delusional woman to a violent demise. But a customised oaken barrel was eventually built. It was lined with mattress cushions and weighted by an anvil at one end to forestall a headfirst landing. It was further insulated with air compressed with a bicycle pump and sealed with a cork. The name Queen of the Mist was painted on its side. A couple of days before Taylor attempted her descent, it was tested by sending it over the falls, piloted by a cat. The cat, the feline Laika to Taylor's Yuri Gagarin, survived. Taylor reasoned that she would as well, and on this day, 122 years ago, at a bit after four in the afternoon, she was strapped into her barrel and lowered into the water about a mile upriver of the falls. Taylor was retrieved from her barrel conscious and in a state which did the barrel's manufacturers, the West Bay City Cooperage Company, considerable credit. She had a cut on her head and a few bruises and scrapes but was basically all right. She looked forward to a retirement sure to be lavishly gilded by cashing in on her feet. 
Annie Edson Taylor was the first, but not the last. In the early decades of the 20th century, further daredevils sought to emulate her stunt with varying results. The Barnum and Bailey acrobat Bobby Leach broke both his knees and his jaw. Of Charles Stevens, a barber from England, nothing was ever found but one arm strapped to the inside of his barrel. George Stathakis, a chef from Buffalo, was killed, though his emotional support turtle survived. The most recent, probably deliberate and successful ride of the falls was undertaken by unemployed Michigan man Kirk Jones, who did so in 2003 with, incredibly, no protection beyond the clothes he was wearing. Though he sought to characterise it as a suicide attempt after being fished out of the drink, his friends and accomplices claimed that Jones, like Annie Edson Taylor, believed it would be the making of him. Tragically, a subsequent descent by Jones in 2017, this time over the American Falls inside a large inflatable ball, was the unmaking of him. What was the sensation like as you fell over the precipice? What happened to you in the fall? What did it feel like to fall? Annie Edson Taylor could have told Kirk Jones and all who followed her that the market for the reminiscences and mementos of Niagara plungers is less lucrative than might be imagined. She gave a few speeches, opened a few shops and signed a few postcards, but failed to become any kind of primordial Evil Knievel-style celebrity. It did not help that her scoundrel manager ran off with her barrel and a much younger woman, who he passed off to oblivious punters as the woman who conquered the falls. Annie Edson Taylor died penniless in 1921, aged 82. A 21st century musical based on her life did little better. And then one day in April, April 29th to be exact, you'll die a pauper. You'll be alone and under state care in an almshouse. You'll be buried in a pauper's grave. Eventually, people will chip in and buy a proper headstone. All right, what have you ever done? Or death. It will say, Annie Edson Taylor, first to go over the horseshoe fall in a barrel and live. That's all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Yossi Mechelberg and Nadine Batchelor-Hunt. Today's show was produced by Carlotta Rebello and researched by Harrison Warlock. Our sound engineer was Steph Chungu. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. 